from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Is an alleged massacre in the Ukrainian town of Bucha part of the fog of war or the lies of war? We speak to human rights activist Ajamu Baraka and consortium news editor Joe Laria. They want to blame this on Russia, and that's the end of the story. This is my trouble with this. You can't just blame someone right away when there are all these questions. The U.S. population is subjected to nonstop propaganda, nonstop assaults on their consciousness and their ability to, in fact, think critically. And marking the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech, activists with the Poor People's Campaign release a new report about the pandemic in the U.S. as a pandemic of the poor. The campaign is organizing for a mass moral march on Washington on June 18th. We assemble and march because there's nothing just about a nation that has spent $21 trillion on war, policing, surveillance, and prisons over the past 20 years amid widespread poverty and economic insecurity. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this week, Ukraine, the U.S., and NATO members accused Russia of committing a massacre in the Kiev suburb of Bucha, where they say a mass grave was found. And photographs and video taken by journalists working near Ukrainian far-right forces show a street littered with corpses. The president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, called the incident a genocide in his continued call for more direct involvement of NATO powers in the war, which we know is a dangerous prospect bringing into direct contact the world's two largest nuclear powers. Russia says it committed no massacre in Bucha, calls it a false flag provocation created by Ukraine, and has been denied two requests for an independent UN investigation. But the work of independent journalists, which we continue to feature on this show, applies a healthy dose of skepticism to the quick mainstream narrative about Bucha, pointing out pronouncements by far-right elements to go into the town and quote-unquote cleanse the area of anyone who had been sympathetic to the Russian forces. Now, for more on this controversy, I'm joined by Joe Lauria, editor-in-chief of Consortium News, founded by the late Robert Perry. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Thank you, Esther. Well, jumping right in, it seems like the timeline of this alleged atrocity is what continues to make independent journalists like yourself skeptical about the official account. In your article this week, you cite an investigation on Standpoint Zero by the writer Jason Michael McCann. And in it, he quotes the U.S. and UE-funded Gorshinin Institute making an announcement on its website on April 2nd saying, Special forces have begun a clearing operation in the city of Bucha in the Kiev region, which has been liberated by the armed forces of Ukraine. The city is being cleared from saboteurs and accomplices of Russian forces. So he goes on to have more information. But I wanted to stop right there and ask you about the timeline and the inconsistencies in the mainstream narrative and what's your impression of that and, and what it tells you about what happened in Bucha. Right. Well, the first point I'd like to make is that unlike a judicial system of a Western country where evidence is gathered and then tested in a courtroom with witnesses and physical evidence and there's a jury, when it comes to war, decisions about guilt are made by political motives alone. We saw many instances of that. I'll give you 
a couple, the MH17 that was shot down uh, the Malaysian plane over Ukraine was immediately blamed on Russia, even if Russia had given the weapon there. It didn't mean that they were involved or that it was an intentional incident rather than perhaps an accident. And this argument really came to a head on the African embassy bombers in the late 1980s, 1990, when there was a debate whether these terrorist suspects of Al-Qaeda should be tried in a courtroom in New York or whether they should just be thrown in a black site like in Guantanamo. And in fact, they were tried in the Southern District of New York. And I was in the courtroom for the trial. I covered it for the Boston Globe at the time. And Republicans in particular went crazy. When it comes to war, there should be no evidence. You should just blame your enemy at that time. And I think, of course, in war, there's a need for an even higher standard than in a criminal case because of all the consequences that are involved. That said, we're seeing this rush to judgment right away that Russia was responsible for this massacre. And I write in my piece and I say here, they may have been responsible for this. But just hold on a minute is what the Pentagon said. The Pentagon on Sunday or Monday of this week said that they can't confirm or deny who was responsible for this massacre. Now, why did the Pentagon say that? Because they have been the only force in Washington left that is trying to prevent a, a war between NATO and Russia, which could lead to the most unimaginable consequences. They are trying to slow everybody down and tamp down the hysteria and the emotions. And of course, that piped up again after this massacre that people were calling in the media for uh, Russia to be attacked by NATO again, which some people believe is the reason why this may have been a staged incident to try to get NATO to intervene, very similar to the way jihadists in Syria apparently staged chemical attacks in order to get, uh, and I think that's been proven now, to get the United States to intervene against right. uh, Bashar al-Assad. Now, getting to the timeline, quickly, on Wednesday of last week, the Russians said they had left Bucha. On Thursday, the mayor of the town seemed to have confirmed that by going on a uh, Facebook page and doing a selfie in which he called this a glorious day of liberation for the town of Bucha. The Russians have left. He's smiling. That's the next day. Friday, the following day, this magazine that you refer to, that McCann writes about, publishes a report at that day saying, uh, quoting a town council official saying, Azov has arrived, and now this cleaning operation of saboteurs and collaborators will begin. That's Friday. On Saturday, the New York Times arrives in Bucha. They're with the Azov battalion. They appear in their photographs with their patch, with the Wolfsangle SS Nazi symbol on their sleeves. The Times reports six dead, only six civilians dead. At that point, there should have been hundreds of people found dead because that's what we hear on Sunday. Hundreds of bodies found dead, killed by the Russians who have departed. Now, did the New York Times miss all those bodies? Did the mayor miss all of them? It's quite possible the mayor was in a basement. He just emerged, hadn't gone and surveyed the town. That's possible. The Times would certainly, in wanting to produce a full report, would have gone around the town to see what they could, if they were permitted to. Don't know exactly what happened there. Were they embedded with the Azov Battalion? Was I, don't, I don't know time? if I would call that embedded. Uh, I don't know. Okay. But they, they went in to the town and they quoted Azov people. And there you could see photographs that were taken by a New York Times photographer of the Azov Battalion. Okay. So whether they went in with them, whether they met them there, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the issue is then what happened? Because 
on Wednesday, the Russians left. Thursday, the mayor says they're gone. He celebrates. Friday, town council person says, Azov's here to clean up saboteurs and collaborate. Saturday, the Times is there. They only see six dead bodies. Sunday, we hear about hundreds. When did these hundreds of people die? Well, the New York Times then later, a few hours after I published my article on Monday, reported, uh, showed some satellite photos that they purport to be from mid-March of the bodies strewn on a major thoroughfare in the town of Bucha, which apparently that Times reported did not find on Saturday. These satellite photos from Maxor, which is a private company, a defense, U.S. defense contractor, claimed these bodies were there since mid-March. So we'd also now have intercepts from the German intelligence service, apparently of Russian soldiers talking routinely, you know, matter of factly about the people they killed, shot somebody on a bicycle, whatnot. Der Spiegel reported this. And then there's a major correction at the bottom of the Spiegel article, Russian soldiers intercepted mm-hmm. by the German foreign intelligence service. That's oh, wow. uh, so, the, so the Russian soldiers are talking to one another about who they killed. And originally, Der Spiegel, the news magazine in Germany, said that these people, these soldiers were in Bucha. But now there's a correction saying it was somewhere north of Kiev. So they don't really even know if it was in Bucha anymore. But nonetheless, what I argue is there needs to be obviously an independent investigation here because there's a whole bunch of evidence that we I have just laid out here that needs special investigation. And only the UN can really do that. They're the only ones who have some modicum of impartiality left here. You can't have the Ukrainian government leading the investigation. It's like you right. can't invite the Russians back in to investigate that. And that's exactly what the Secretary General of the UN has called for. But it doesn't look like the Security Council is in any uh, any hurry to put that together. And there needs to be a hurry because in order to do autopsies on these bodies, to find most importantly, the time of their death, the day of their death, and the causes of their death, that has to be done. And if some of these bodies have been lying out there for three or four weeks now, as the New York Times is claiming with their satellite photos, that's almost impossible to do. Right. And I wanted to add this to the question. And that's the fact that a battle happened in Bucha, apparently, right? And where civilians might be hit by both sides, you know, if there was an exchange of fire between Russia and Ukraine, which I think there was, right? And then there's also the fact that early on in the conflict, I heard of Volodymyr Zelensky announced that he was handing out weapons, hand weapons to anyone who wanted one are basically deputizing, you know, civilians to, to fight. And so once you have a weapon, you're no longer a civilian. And I was had a conversation earlier this week when I was just making the point. I'm not really sure how the U.S. corporate media is defining a civilian. And then finally, I saw in that same investigation that you cite by McCann and Sandpoint Zero, where he cites an interview or a post by a Ukrainian medic who explained that those in the mass grave that are supposedly victims of of genocide and mass murder were actually civilian fighters who died fighting each other in the town. And so I'm, you know, thinking, you know, well, why aren't these kinds of facts being reported by the U.S. and the U.K. or European corporate media? Because as you say in this piece, this incident is turning into this critical moment in the war with people like using it to call for more U.S. direct involvement. Right. Well, that is not being reported in Western media because Western media has obviously been pushing a narrative. The Ukrainian side, they're winning the war. Russia was stalled outside Kiev. They got defeated and they left. The Russian 
side of the story as they never intended to take Kiev. There was a diversionary tactic to keep Ukrainian troops bogged down there to defend the capital while they were going and taking Mariupol. And now they're going to the major battle in Donbass, which is what this war is all about, Russia says. So they pulled the troops out. But clearly, there was a battle there. You see photographs of destroyed tanks littering at least one street. It looks like it could be all over the city, but this could be just one street. Can't tell. I don't know. And this is a really important question you raised. When did that battle take place? Was there an ambush at the time when the Russians, if you remember that long column of tank of trucks and tanks that were going into Ukraine, that Nancy Pelosi said she'd like to get in a plane and bomb herself? Well, was that, uh, she literally said that, was that part of this stalling, this, this, sorry, this diversionary tactic, or were they stalled? Was there an ambush? There's reports there were ambushes of those of columns. This could have been one of them here in Bucha. So maybe that happened weeks ago, those littered tanks. I don't, I don't know. Or did that happen when Russia was just leaving? I've not seen anybody report that. That's a crucial question. But this kind of uh, interviews that you mentioned McCann uh, reported on, this is the part of the evidence that needs to be looked at. And there's not one piece of evidence that I've mentioned or that anyone else has that can solve this case. Who did this massacre? There's a whole bunch of evidence, including the satellite pictures of the New York Times, including those interviews. The timeline that I mentioned, what the mayor knew or didn't know, these are the questions that need to be asked by an impartial investigation. And it turns out that the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court is in Kiev at the moment, but nobody's heard him going up to Bucha to bring a team there to start an investigation. They would need the permission of the Ukrainian government. They might need a mandate from the Security Council, but that hasn't happened. There was a big meeting of the council. Zelensky, a security council, addressed the council. The Russian ambassador directly addressed him and gave the Russian side of the story. But nobody talked except the secretary general about having an investigation. And he would need some kind of mandate. Some organization would have to be either created or the existing International Criminal Court could go in there and do that. Or the Human Rights Council, which Russia was just kicked off of, they could create a committee, and even the OSCE might be able to go back in and investigate. So there are bodies that could investigate. They would probably need some kind of mandate, though, from the Security Council. We don't see what's happening because it's not to the advantage of the U.S. and the NATO countries. They want to blame this on Russia, and that's the end of the story. This is my trouble with this. You can't just blame someone right away when there are all these questions that we've been discussing here. Before we wrap up, I understand that there's even newer video coming out that you know, adds more questions about this. Yeah, there's a very strange video that's on going around on Twitter of some soldiers. It's hard to identify who they are dragging dead bodies from the curb towards the middle of the street. It's a very disturbing video, and we have no idea what this means, but it, uh, it should be part of the investigation that I'm talking about. You know, Russian soldiers could have done this. I want to make this clear, because in war, even without orders, crazy things are done by soldiers who can go mad and kill civilians. The Spiegel article is implying that this was the Russian policy to kill the civilians. There's no evidence for that, but we got to look at all the evidence, including this bizarre dragging of bodies by ropes into the middle of a street, presumably in the town of Bucha. Yeah, especially when there's a history of these types of incidents turning out to be totally different. Like, you know, a year or two years or five years later, people find out the truth, right? Right. Uh, Right. Well, I I think I have to leave it there, but we look forward to continue to speak with you uh, to kind of cut through uh, what some people call the fog of war, but I have one listener who just calls it the the lies of war. (laughs) Yes, uh, indeed. Right. 
So uh, I've been speaking with Joe Loria, editor-in-chief of the award-winning Consortium News, ConsortiumNews.com. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. After winning an historic labor fight to form the first union at Amazon in the United States at a warehouse on Staten Island, New York, union leader Chris Small said Thursday in an interview here in D.C. that the next big fight is to ratify the contract with Amazon. First things first, we got to fight for a contract. You know, now the real battle really begins, you know. Yeah. So we're we're going to walk and chew bubblegum at the same time. We're going to be focused on the election and also focus on proposing the contract to deliver to the company as soon as possible. We don't want to be a long, dragged out process. We want to make sure we deliver a contract. That'd be the real victory. Speaking in studio to Radio Sputnik, Smalls added that he has been contacted by more than 100 other Amazon work sites in the country and had just met with officials at the Teamsters Union. He also praised this week's advice from Jennifer Abruzzo, top counsel to the National Labor Relations Board. Abruzzo said that captive audience pro-company meetings held by employers should be outlawed. She said that such meetings have been used to coerce workers trying to organize at Starbucks, Walmart, and Amazon. That's monumental because we were the one possibly by a landslide if they weren't able to do that. You know, those audiences where they put these workers in classrooms every 20 minutes, every single day for the last, you know, six, seven months, they're very coercive. They telling people to vote no, they're taking away their option. It's uh, suppressing their votes and spreading misinformation, spreading lies that doesn't help the workers that's trying to organize. For activists in D.C., this grassroots union victory with the potential to transform the lives of millions of workers almost overshadowed Thursday's Senate vote confirming Ketanji Brown-Jackson to become the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Three Republicans joined all Democrats in voting to confirm Jackson, who will join a court dominated now by right-wing extremists who will be deciding on cases related to reproductive health, climate change, voting rights, and workers' rights. Just this week, the Supreme Court reinstated a Trump administration rule that undermined state and tribal authority to protect water quality under the Clean Water Act. There are also other labor updates in D.C. this week. Congress redirected more than $3 million in already appropriated pandemic funds to save the jobs of 81 workers at the Senate Dining Hall, who had received layoff notices last week. D.C. city workers, members of ASME Local 2401, picketed Wednesday in support of continued access to telework. They are objecting to a letter from the district stating that D.C. businesses generate tax revenue for the city and are suffering because there are no workers in city offices. To that letter, Local 2401 responded, quote, employees are not cash cows to be exploited for someone else's profits, end quote. 
There's a new group challenging labor unions, and I don't mean employers, a new group called the Labor Education Project on AFL-CIO International Operations, or LAPAL, which is not affiliated with AFL-CIO, wants the AFL to reject $75 million in funding from the government-affiliated National Endowment for Democracy, which is implicated in destabilization of governments around the globe. The project says that the AFL-CIO needs to open its books and disclose the extent of its relationship with the National Endowment for Democracy. On-the-ground contributor Thomas O'Rourke is an organizer with LaPau and spoke to fellow organizer Steve Zeitzer. American unions should not be involved in trying to overthrow governments in other countries and also setting up pro-corporate unions that support privatization uh, and um, the policies that we're actually fighting here in the United States. According to Covert Action Magazine, the National Endowment for Democracy deleted in February searchable online results of its grants to Ukraine. The magazine said that the archived web page captured on February 25th, 2022, shows that NED granted more than $22 million in the form of 334 grants to Ukraine between 2014 to the present. LaPau's April 8th press conference is noon in front of the AFL-CIO headquarters at 815 16th Street Northwest, just north of the White House. The Saturday, April 9th event is 2 to 6 p.m., Eastern Time at the University of the District of Columbia, the Windows Lounge in building number 38, and will be streamed on Zoom. All information is on the website, which is www.aflcio-int.education. And after national actions on Monday, dubbed Student Loan Debt Day, President Biden extended the moratorium on student loan payments from May 1st until the end of August. In response, activists tweeted, good move, now cancel it all. Biden can cancel all or a portion of student debt with the stroke of a pen without a congressional vote. Also landing on Biden's desk this week was a letter from 275 climate scientists telling Biden to, quote, follow the science, stop fossil fuels, end quote. Scientists and the advocacy group Food and Water Watch led strikes and occupations in dozens of countries to highlight the urgency of the ecological and climate crisis. The demonstrations have become more urgent in the U.S. after Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm recently declared that the United States is on a war footing and called on increased oil and gas production. And finally, in culture and media, on April 4th, which marked the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the Poor People's Campaign held a press conference and demonstration here in D.C. to announce the results of an extensive study showing that the pandemic, which has killed nearly a million Americans, killed people in poor counties at a rate of up to five times higher than those who live in wealthier counties. In a statement, the campaign said that the study was released to also coincide with the anniversary of King's speech titled Beyond Vietnam at Riverside Church in 1967, when he drew the connection between poverty, racism, and war one year before his assassination on April 4th, 
1968. A man in Mississippi, Fred Womack, who lost 20 family members to COVID, spoke by video at the press conference. He said, quote, the coronavirus had hit our family real hard here in Mississippi. We went through periods where we lost three or four family members at a time, having four funerals on one day due to the COVID outbreak. A lot of family members have to reach in their pockets just to bury their loved ones. We did that over and over and over again to where it almost became systematic, end quote. More on King's legacy after headlines and later in the show. Meanwhile, uninsured Americans could pay nearly $200 for COVID tests now because federal funding that covered the cost of coronavirus testing and treatment for uninsured Americans ended last month. Future funding relies on Congress passing the White House's request for billions of dollars in COVID relief, which is mired in debate, but billions primarily for weapons have been quickly approved for the war in Ukraine. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is Iraq. Yeah. Cut us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. Hadel Iraq. This is Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Look how I'm throwing up. Prime Minister on the up. Yeah, this is Iraq. Corrupting the area. Farsi hysteria. Saying we gon' take care of ya. Nah, nah. I'ma get shot for this. Nah, nah. You might get blocked from this. Nah, nah. I'ma go train a kid. Nah, nah. Wash off the innocence. Nah, nah. Sense for blood, like yeah, yeah. I'm so bored, like yeah, yeah. Let's go blow, like yeah. Braka. Iraq. Look at us blowing up. Nobody showing up. Nobody owing up. Hadel Iraq. Bidai tak akhirtak. Jawazak akhirtak. Bazdir balak lak latagalat. Look how they freaking out. Take your clothes off. Rape. Taking photo. Grape. I'm so petty. They don't get it. They're immune. This is telly. That's the news Media blackout Black. Then it's lights out yeah. Keep sniffing the tar We'll lift the door, my yahmar Barrels on barrels on barrels, barrels. Food for barrels and barrels Ellie Burton, the demolished Delivered the mission Too many poor people are dying And it's gone on And we won't be people a minimum to come today to dedicate Pennsylvania Avenue that we're going to fill up 
on June 18, 2022. We just left a report that showed that poor and low-wealth people died at a rate five times higher in some places in some aspects of this pandemic. And the evidence in places was sometimes deliberately not tracked. And that if it had been tracked, there would have been all of these, these unnecessary deaths would have not occurred on top of what was already happening. Each of you today will represent millions of people. We will stretch out this line. We will not bunch up today. We want this line to stretch as long, so at least 10 to 15 feet apart at all times, not for COVID, but to make sure that it's long enough and we stay in Pennsylvania Avenue long enough that people know us, see us, and are very clear that June 18th, the Mass Poor People's Low Wage Workers Assembly and Mar March on Washington to the polls is not a day, but a declaration. And not an end, but a continuation. And from that day, we will intensify and embolden our agitation. But we're going to first make sure the nation sees clearly who we are. Reverend Dr. Liz Steele Harris is going to frame us up for today. And then we're going to go through a condensed version of the declaration, why we march, why we assemble. Let me ask all clergy to just raise your hand, clergy that are out here, my brothers and sisters, we love you. Thank God for you, all impacted persons that are here who identify, boy, low wealth, and all advocates that are here today because you don't know anything else to do but to stand up and fight for what's right. What we heard in this poor people's pandemic report and what we knew going into the COVID-19 pandemic is that there is no peace, there is no justice for almost half of the richest country in human history. We heard that two times, three times, up to five times the number of people who died from COVID and the pandemics that preceded it and have continued through it were from poor, the poorest counties across this nation. Our nation has gotten ready, gotten used to death, especially when it's the death of poor and low income people. But as we just sang out, our, we will not, we cannot, and we are not being silent anymore. We will rise together, show the pain, will cry out, and show our power to enact to enact all of our demands, not just a few, from the bottom up. And so let us indeed be here to declare that we are coming and we are ready and we're poor and we're clergy and we're advocates and we're activists and we're organizers and we are far from silent. The stones around us and us are crying out. There is no peace. And so we are working for justice. Amen. Amen. We got a lot of work to do, yo, y'all. We got to scream it. This has got to scream it. So today's start. When we march, you can say it like, let me see both sides of your 
those of you all wearing party placards. We want everybody to hold up June 18th. Some of you have June 18th, and the person on the other side of you have the facts. One side, if it's two by two, one, there you go. Because this is about getting the message out. We're not just walking among ourselves, and we won't be satisfied with just ourselves. We have to call this nation. Hey, Pam from West Virginia. All right, we, and we're leaving here right after this, headed to West Virginia for a five-day march across West Virginia, right in the territory of Joe Manchin, right past his nasty coal mines. So this is mobilization time. All right, and Reverend Dr. Jackson, our executive director, is going to lead us in the proclamation as we dedicate this space and this street. I'm going to ask all of the clergy who are joining with me in this to come stand close all over this country and from Washington, D.C. People are preparing to come on June 18th for the Mass Poor Peoples and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington and to the polls. We must assemble. Say, we must assemble. We must assemble in March here in the nation's capital to summons a moral response to the pain of 140 million poor and low-wealth people, low-wage workers, and all of us impacted by the injustices of poverty, racism, the war-based economy, ecological devastation, denial of health care, and the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. We must, say we must, we must, we must organize a sustained moral fusion movement that seeks to shift the moral narrative, build power, and present before the nation a redemptive third reconstruction agenda that builds from the bottom up. We must, say we must, we must, we must challenge the notion that what we are doing is the best we can do. Today, America has to guarantee living wages, adequate income, health care, affordable housing, quality public education, expanded voting rights, access to democracy, fair taxation, debt relief, just immigration, a climate where we can all thrive, and a world committed to peace rather than violence and war. This we declare, for this we must do. When? Today. When? Today. When? Today. Good morning. My name is Reverend Dr. Angela Martin, and along with Rabbi Alana Suskind, we are the co-chairs of the Maryland Poor People's Campaign. And we invite you to join us as we compel the nation to mourn, feel the pain and the power of our people, and see that the path of healing and justice is possible. Join us to move this society beyond the false choices of liberal versus conservative and right versus left and toward the essential question of our time, right versus wrong. Join us to revive and renew the heart and the soul of this democracy. Join us. Join us. Join us. Join us. We assemble and march because the promise of our democracy requires that we address the interlocking injustices of systematic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, militarism, and the war economy, and the false narrative of religious nationalism, the very foundation of the country.
has been made brittle and broken under the weight of injustice. It is time to heal the wounds of our society and declare a moral revival across the land. It is time. 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 Buenos días. Mi nombre es María Chavalán Sud. Soy Maya Cachiquel. Soy una de las mujeres y hombres que nos hemos refugiado en iglesias, santuarios, porque ICE nos obligó a encerrarnos en una iglesia para salvar nuestras vidas. Y no estamos tranquilos porque no nos han quitado la orden de deportación. Nos juntamos y marchamos porque antes de la pandemia, 250 mil personas morían cada año, o sea, 700 personas cada día, por la pobreza y, y desigualdad. Y mientras tanto, las riquezas de los billonarios creció lo más alto durante la peor crisis económica y pública de una generación. Muchas gracias. Hello everyone, I'm Robin Leo, I'm, I'm Maria's interpreter, and Maria is uh, one of our sanctuary leaders in Virginia, and we assemble in March because there was 140 million poor and low wealth people before the pandemic, and 250,000 people died every year. Yeah. That is over 700 people every day because of poverty and inequality. Meanwhile, billionaires and their wealth is at an all-time high, even, the, even during the worst economic and public health crisis of a generation. Everybody, Everybody. has a right, has a right. To, live. to live. We won't be silent anymore. I'm Reverend Abhi Janamanchi, and I am here on behalf of Unitarian Universalists and Sadhana, an organization of progressive Hindus. We assemble and march because the pandemic revealed deep fissure, fissures in our society, exposing long-term racial and economic equalities like a contrast dye in our body politic. Nearly one million people have died from the coronavirus. Millions of workers have been called essential while being treated as expendable. And millions more are facing low wages, unemployment, eviction, <coughs> hunger, and the denial of health care. No more! No, no more. more! We won't be silent! We won't be silent anymore! anymore. Hello, my name is Kyla Warman, and today we assemble in March because we are living through an historic crisis of democracy. Voting rights are under attack in almost every single state. Voter suppression targets people of color and undermines the right to vote of women, of youth, the elderly, and the poor. It also ushers in policies that hurt millions of people through attacks on immigration, living wages, health care women's rights, LGBTQ rights, public education, 
social welfare programs, and more. And we won't be silent. Your brother, Imam Safit Abed Chadovich of the Islamic Society of North America. We assemble in March because the climate crisis is devastating our communities and our planet. With poor and low wealth people hit first and worst by the raging fires, the floods, the drought, and pollution while fossil fuel companies are getting tax breaks. The 140 million are facing the highest cancer rates in the country. Our water is being shut off and our homes and holy sites being mined, poisoned and destroyed. Never, never, never. will we, will we turn, back turn back and stop, and stop the fight for justice. Good afternoon, I'm Liz McNichol, a chair of the D.C. Poor People's Campaign. We assemble in March because there's nothing just about a nation that has spent $21 trillion on war, policing, surveillance, and prisons over the past 20 years amid widespread poverty and economic insecurity. In spite of fighting poverty, our nation has invested in a long-term war on the poor at home and across the world. As is always the case with war and violence, poor and low-wealth people lose the most. Today, we must come to see that war itself is an enemy of the poor everywhere. We will fight, we will fight. The, enemy the enemy of poverty every day. Every day. We will love those who promote poverty, until they change. We will love them enough to tell them the truth, to march on them, to engage in any way, non-violently, to change, transplant the heart of this nation. That was the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, joined by other organizers speaking April 4th, 2022 at Freedom Plaza in Northwest D.C. to dedicate that space for the June 18th Moral March on Washington. Before the march, they held a press conference to present the findings of their report on the pandemic in the United States, calling it a pandemic of the poor. The report is available the report available on the campaign's website showed that people in poor counties died at a rate up to five times higher than those who live in wealthier counties. This is On the Ground. Stay with us.
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the United Nations General Assembly voted Thursday to suspend Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. The resolution proposed by the U.S. received 93 votes with 24 members opposed and 58 abstaining. China, a fellow permanent Security Council member, was a no vote. Among the abstentions were India, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, and South Africa. Well, to discuss the latest with Ukraine, especially as it pertains to the Global South, is Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for Black Alliance for Peace and former Green Party nominee for Vice President of the United States. Welcome back to the show, Ajamu. Thank you, Esther. Glad to be here. Well, the pleasure is all ours. Well, I know that the Black Alliance for Peace is celebrating its fifth anniversary. You were founded on April 4th, 2017, on the birthday of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And so this year marks five years. And you say on your website, we have resisted assuming the herd position on the complex situation in Ukraine by reminding the public that for BAP or BAP, the task must be decentering the Eurocentric drama in Ukraine. As important as the conflict is, we have concluded it is more productive to help the public refocus on the longer term structural logic of imperialism that is driving decision making. So I thought we would start on your top line thoughts about the latest in Ukraine and how imperialism is driving decision making. And that's something that the public really isn't getting on corporate media for sure. Of course, I mean, because what, what the public is getting instead is a constant morality story every evening with Ukraine. The real issues that brought the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine to the point where it is today can only be explained by looking at the underlying material interests and contradictions. That while the issue of security is important and was one of the driving uh, elements well, what we really see is that it has been the policies of the U.S. in attempting to try to maintain its dominance in Europe that's been driving their decision-making processes. Part of what they saw to contain Russia and to maintain their uh, dominant position in the European market uh, was to disarticulate the European economy from the Russian economy. They were in particular, you know, concerned with the Nord Stream 2 uh, gas pipeline because they knew that would uh, further integrate the Russian and the European economies. So their concern for advancing their interests, their concerns about the growing cooperation and partnership between uh, Russia and China was the driving force of their policies, because as we all know, they see great power competition as the fundamental element of their foreign policy concerns. They believe that the only way they can maintain global hegemony is to, in fact, undermine the emerging powers of Russia uh, and the Chinese. So that is what we have to take a look at, as opposed to uh, trying to understand these issues in terms of personality and psychologies and all of that. You got to look at the driving underlying material forces and interests. During this whole conflict in Ukraine, the Black Alliance for Peace has been highlighting other struggles around the world. For example, the struggle of Haitian workers 
garment workers in Haiti to receive a better wage right now working for under $5 a day. And they want a, a wage of up to $15 a day. Still, that would be not even considered here in the United States, but we see what people around the globe are working for, uh, largely under the control or thumb of U.S. corporations, U.S. back corporations. So what are some of the other struggles you think that are being ignored or being eclipsed because of this hyper-focus on Europe right now and the kind of ignoring other conflicts where the U.S. is complicit in denying the, the human rights that they are fighting for, supposedly, in, in Ukraine? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's conflicts around the world and it's conflicts even within the U.S. This war uh, has diverted people's attention away from. we got to remember that the manufactured crisis that we see as uh, Ukraine uh, was a desperate attempt on the part of the Biden administration to, in fact, divert attention away from their failed domestic policies and the fact that the economy was in the shape that it, in fact, was and still is. In fact, it's gotten worse. So you have the conflicts that the U.S. is still engaged in in places like uh, Yemen. You have the people of Afghanistan who are starving. You have the peoples of the Americas who are still grappling with an embargo against Cuba and the subversion against Nicaragua. You have the militarization taking place in the Americas by the U.S. You have the U.S. ratcheting up the contradictions in the Asia-Pacific area, in particular the issue with Taiwan. But you have in the U.S. also, though, you know, a continuation of the killings of black and brown people by the police. The fact that that this conflict in Ukraine is going to result in uh, increasing food prices for people who are already in desperate straits, the rising gas prices in a culture where you have to have a car, and this inflation that's been imposed on the working class and the U.S. population by these rapacious capitalists who are trying to recoup their profits from 2020 and 2021. So you have an economic crisis unfolding uh, in this country. So all of these issues uh, are not getting the kind of attention they should get because of this conflict. We have an international human rights crisis and the potential for an explosive social situation uh, with these, these escalating food and gas prices that will, in fact, get some attention pretty soon. But all of this is part of the ability of the state, the ability of the capitalist dictatorship to divert people away from the places where they should be placing their real attention to these issues that only benefit uh, the capitalist class. That, to me, is a, is a reflection of what has to be done in terms of political work on the part of anti-imperialists and anti-war activists uh, in the U.S. to redirect people's attention to where they should be uh, focused on to improve the material interests of the people and to stop this war machine. Right. It also seems to me that part of this way that the American public has its attention diverted, it's also uh, in terms of ignoring history or forgetting history. And when independent journalists have looked into this alleged massacre, many people thought back immediately to the same kinds of claims that were made about Syria. 
where supposedly the leader of the country, Bashar al-Assad, was using chemical weapons against his own people. And it didn't make any sense then because that was the one thing that was supposedly the red line, right? That the Obama administration then said, okay, well, if he uses chemical weapons, we're going to go in. And then surprise, suddenly there was a chemical attack and it was blamed on Assad. It didn't make any sense. He was winning the war. He wouldn't do the one thing that would bring in the U.S. to have an excuse to come into the war. Well, anyway, the same thing seems to be happening now. That's those same type of tactics. Um, journalists are pointing out those same types, that, that history, and the fact that it could be occurring again with these types of tactics, accusing Russia of a so-called uh, massacre in, in Bucha. So I'm mentioning that because I just think that very often Americans are also uh, forgetting the history you know, of not only that, but the non-existent weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, the you know, non-existent Viagra that Gaddafi was using to like make his soldiers rape in his country. I mean, just mm-hmm. the, all the lies and all the different scenarios and false flags that the U.S. has raised in the past. And so in addition to just not, you know, knowing about or not recognizing these struggles that are around the world, Americans just seem to be oblivious or just very forgetful of the history of imperialism as well. It's quite amazing. But, you know, we have to recognize that the U.S. population is subjected to uh, nonstop propaganda, nonstop assaults on their consciousness and their ability to, in fact, think critically, not only from the uh, propagandists from the state, but from all of the messages and images uh, coming from the entertainment industry, cinema, the games, it is nonstop pro-American, pro-violent exceptionalism uh, that the people are bombarded with uh, every day and is also reflective, too, of the education that people are exposed to. So, you know, the, the country has, has moved to the right uh, no one is following these important issues that impact their lives until they, in fact, do impact their lives, like with rising gas prices and food prices. But they are not learning the lessons because no one's really paying attention. And that's why it's so incredibly easy for the ruling elements to manipulate uh, public consciousness and to have people supporting uh, what are very narrow interests of the capitalist class uh, in Ukraine. The objective of the uh, Ukrainian war is basically to try to consolidate the control of the European economy by U.S. capital, to disarticulate uh, the Russian economy from the European economy. And they've been quite successful in that. They created the conditions that provoked the Russians to go into Ukraine and provided the pretext then for the massive uh, and draconian uh, sanctions that the people are now being subjected to. So, and with the massive support from the U.S. population, where now it came out, I think, today, something like 93 percent of the U.S. public sees Russia as its enemy. So this is what we are up against. And it's a very it creates a very dangerous situation, not only in terms of support for this Russian war, but we saw how easy it was, too, for them to generate anti-Chinese feelings. Okay, then you have that racial element there that is a very powerful weapon. 
Well, I've been speaking with Ajamu Baraka, National Organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. And Ajamu Baraka will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital on two dozen stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, on all your podcast platforms at On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, and on our website, onthegroundshow.org. You can also let us know you like the show on Twitter, patreon.com, and on Facebook at On the Ground Show, all of which have a protest sign with green letters that say On the Ground. The Facebook page is accessible again, and now more than 1,000 of you have liked On the Ground's page. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Averum, that's E-S-T-H-E-R underscore I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The music we played this hour included This Is Iraq by I-N-Z, Street Fighter Moss by Kamasi Washington, Shalala by the Ether Orchestra, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material or you can see all the ways to support including end of the year giving and paypal on our website which you know is on the ground show dot org thank you <laughs>